that chorus has been going through my mind day after day. You know, I am no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. And I've thought about it. You know, there's a lot worse things to have going through your mind than that little chorus all through the week, you know. And I know I'll have it all going through my head all this week. And it's really the perfect song to introduce the topic that we're looking at this morning. Because as you see on your bulletin, we're talking about H-E double hockey sticks, yeah? Hell. And so if there's any topic in all of Christendom, I guess, that is more... Uh, that is more wrapped up in this idea of fear, then I don't know what it is if it's not hell. Uh, Few topics are as terrifying and as offensive as hell. And many of us have had the experience of someone, perhaps at a church, at a summer camp, I've certainly had that, uh, after school program, or perhaps at home, even to get your kids to step into line, has used the threat of hell to try to get you to do something, believe something, or etc. You see, I've had all kinds of these experiences. Maybe it's my tradition, but the place I went to college the first year, uh, they had Halloween. They had what they called a haunted hayride, and it was a Christian haunted hayride. And so here's what they did. They dug a big pit, and the, the, the hayride culminated. And at the end, they dug a trench around that pit. They filled that with kerosene. They put people in that pit. They lit that trench on fire, and there was a burning circle, you know, and the, uh, the hayride culminated with that. And afterwards, they gave the gospel. If you believe this, you can avoid that. I can remember on lower budgets, because we grew up in smaller churches a lot, so we, we didn't have the time and resources to dig pits and fill them with kerosene, you know. But uh, I can remember being in multiple occasions where uh, hell was this fan and they put the, the red streamers and orange streamers on it, and they turn that fan on, and they tell us the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And we'll talk about that story in a bit. Uh, I can remember going to summer camp, and every Tuesday night at summer camp, the one I went to, and I loved, loved summer camp. But I remember at summer camp, every Tuesday night, they called it birthday night because they were going to give the gospel message, you know? And so at dinner, all the kids looked forward to it because you got birthday cake, so you got to eat this birthday cake. And uh, then you went to the... Uh, forget what we called it, the, the lodge thing, and they gave the message, and the director there always gave the message, and he was really good at the hell messages, really good. I probably heard 50 of them. I think I became a Christian 50 times, you see? <laughs> Every time I was scared witless, and I just thought, it's better to just say that prayer again than have that happen, you see? Uh, many of us have been in presentations like this where we've had This vision of hell drilled into our skulls. Some of us have had experiences. I had this other experience. You know, the one common objection is this idea of trying to scare people into hell. And many, and we know all these people, they say something like this. I can't believe in a God who would send, a loving God who would send people to hell. And uh, that's not how my God works. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. But wouldn't that be nice if we could just, you know, I don't like grilled cheese, so this will be fish. You see, you can't, just, you can't just change reality because you don't like reality. Now, I will talk about hell in a second in a different way than I ever heard it growing up. But reality is not changed by our like or dislike of it. Um, the second objection I get, though, is really revolves around who gets there. You know, how do you get to hell and how do you not get there? And that's predominantly the question. 
And perhaps you've had this happen too, and it comes from grounds. Uh, I had a discussion with one of my very good friends, and it was revolved around the topic of homosexuality. And she said, I just can't believe that like, that's the thing that gets you to hell, right? That if, I, if somebody does this, that that's it, and they go to hell. And you know, I thought to myself, well, I'm sure you've heard that somewhere, but I don't know where. I, I, I don't think the majority of Christians would believe that a specific sin, whatever the sin, is the re- reason you get sent to hell. But she had reasons for thinking that. In fact, I want to show you one, and I want you to turn there with me. And perhaps you've read these verses before, and these are good by way of introduction. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and it's found on page 926, if you're using the Bible in front of you, the blue Bible, um, 926. And in fact, we just last week looked at purity, and we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, and these are the three verses that precede what we looked at last week. But perhaps you've heard these before, and maybe you just didn't know where they were, but these are kind of terrifying verses at first. But I want you to see what they say. And this is what my friend was talking about when she said, I just can't believe that's what gets you to hell. Verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? For do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you look at that and you're like, man, if I've done those things, I'm just in trouble. But see what the text says next, because Paul can't mean if you've done one of those things that you get sent to hell or you don't inherit the kingdom of God, which is his language in 1 Corinthians 6. He says in verse 11, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, while Paul holds up these things that he declares wicked and says, those who do so will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not saying those who have ever done so. He's saying those who continue to do wickedness uh, and do not experience whatever he talks about in verse 11. We'll, look at, we'll, we'll talk about this in a different way in a little bit at the end of the sermon. But whatever, whoever hasn't experienced verse 11 does not inherit the kingdom of God, this washing, sanctifying type of thing. But what happens, and it's not that all that uncommon, even if you're not a pastor, I get asked it pretty often, but you've probably been asked for, of it, even if you're just a person who follows Jesus and has a friend that asks Imagine you're with someone that you care about who's just lost a family member, a loved one, a friend, and they turn to you because you're maybe the religious one or whatever. I'm always the religious one by career, it seems. And they ask, what happens to so-and-so? What do you say? Those aren't the fun questions of life, are they? What happens to so-and-so? Or maybe a little more pointed, do you think my loved one is in hell? And you can see, no matter what you believe or where you sit this morning, you would have to be a dimwit to not be able to understand that if you tell someone when they ask you that question, I believe your loved one is in hell, that that's a hard thing for them to hear. Of course that's hard to hear. Whatever the truth is, that should be handled with delicacy. But you see, this morning, and the reason I'm so excited to talk about hell, I choose the topics I could have chosen not to. The reason I'm so excited to talk about hell is I want to help you understand what the Bible actually says about it, which is surprisingly scant. The problem is N.T. Wright 
describes it is, the picture that most of us have of hell is an image gained more from medieval imagery than from the earliest Christian writings. Many people in the church are dogmatically convinced that they understand what hell is and who goes there, and yet when challenged about why they think what they think, rarely could show you the text of Scripture, where it's found, and what it says. And I'm convinced that two things. First, most people's understanding of hell is largely shaped by tradition, the tradition they grew up in. And second, I'm convinced that hell is a dark theological mystery. And I say that because we don't fully grasp it. All I have done this week is read verses on hell and meditate on hell to find patterns in those verses. That sounds fun, doesn't it? I have to be honest, two weeks ago when I spoke on grace, that was more enjoyable. But that's all I've done all week. Meditate on verses on hell to find patterns. And it is a dark theological mystery. And I have the privilege and really the joy, and I don't mean that jokingly, to bring you into it. It's a pretty cool job. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to show you four words that are used in the Bible to describe hell. I'm going to give you two other images where hell is described, although not made by word. And then I'm going to make some, give some takeaways. That's where we're going, and I'm going to move fast. Four words to describe hell. The Old Testament has one word that describes hell. It's the word sheol. It's a Hebrew word because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And the word is used 65 times. Hell in the Old Testament, the word that is translated hell sometimes, is actually a word that most often, 90% of the time, is tr- would be translated the pit, grave, or the, de- the depths. In fact, in the Old Testament, they had a very primitive, if not undeveloped, completely understanding of hell. Whether, well, what, what they thought, we don't know. All we know is what we have actually in the text. So we can't enter into the mind of the ancients ancients. All we can do is look at what they wrote. But from the usage of the word Sheol, the predominant usage is to describe someone who dies. In fact, it is the righteous and the unrighteous, the Old Testament says, that go to Sheol. It is the grave. The author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 that when we go to Sheol, the grave, We are buried, and there is no longer life or planning or wisdom or knowledge. It's just we go there and life is done. The overarching use of Sheol is just to refer to someone who has been dug, a pit has been dug, and they go into the grave. There's a few usages, and they're very very well known. Uh, One is in Psalm chapter 16, and you could read that later. I think it's 8 to 12, but the, the use of Sheol is in verse 10 where it says, I will not allow my Holy One to see decay. I will not leave him to Sheol, the grave. This Psalm 16 gets quoted by the Apostle Peter in his very famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection. But Sheol in the Old Testament is overwhelmingly just referring to the grave, and then later on, as development and the understanding of the prophets is going on, it has a few times where it is understood as kind of this nether world, this nether region. It always refers to a southerly direction, you know, down. Now we come to the New Testament, and there's three words. The first one that I want to bring to your attention is Hades. 
Hades is used 10 times in the New Testament, and it's really the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. Overall, the usage is uh, obviously, for those who know anything about Greek mythology, or maybe you've just read Rick Riordan's books, you know, but Hades is the Greek god of the underworld, Hades. And Hades is a personification in the New Testament often of death. If you read the book of Revelation and you looked up all the instances of Hades in there, which I don't know why you would do that, but if you did, you would find that there is, I think, five references and almost always are describing someone riding a horse who is holding death and Hades in his hand. They're they're parallel ideas. Hades is symbolizing death itself. There's one other very famous instance, I alluded to it earlier, of the word Hades being used, and in this instance, it's translated as hell. It's in Luke chapter 16, and the context is a parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And because it's such an important uh, parable, uh, I just want to review it for you and say what I think it's talking about. Um, Because that's the one I've seen with the fan in the corner, you know, with a person. And so here's what it is. It is a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. And now, first of all, it is a parable, although the word parable is never used in the context. It is a story that Jesus has made up to make a point. And here's the story. There are two men, and they live in the same city. One is named Lazarus, and he is very poor. And the other one is named, we don't know. His name isn't given. He's just a rich man. And in fact, whenever the parable or stories are given in the Bible, the details are very important. And the detail that this rich man has no name is important, for he is just a rich man. He almost has no identity, for his selfless act, or his selfish acts have almost like dehumanized him. And so the rich man and Lazarus live in the same city, and Lazarus, the poor man, lives outside of the rich man's house. On the way, he goes to his house. And so every day he walks by and he ignores him. Surely he heard the rich man, or he heard Lazarus, the rich man. Surely he saw Lazarus. But every day he walks by. Now the rich man finally dies one day and he goes down to Hades, to hell. And in hell, he's experiencing a horrible time. It's not pictured as good at all. And he's very thirsty. That's the one detail that is very clear. And so he uh, cries out and he says, I think it's to Abraham. He says to Abraham, um, you know, could you send Lazarus and have him bring me just a drop of water? Many commentators and scholars think this is, Jesus says this detail to give us the idea of how selfish and arrogant the rich man is even in Hades, hell. For even in Hades, he sees, he doesn't ask Abraham for water. He asks, can you have Lazarus, this lower inferior person, bring me water? And when Abraham says no, he says, well, can you at least, could you please send Lazarus? And have him go to my brothers and explain what this is like so that they don't come. Abraham responds, you know, listen, they've got the prophets. If they did not listen to the prophets, they will not listen to a man who's been risen from the dead. Or who's come from the dead, you know. And um, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because the whole picture here is Jesus will be risen from the dead in a bit. And here we go. What this little parable is teaching, I don't think it's trying to teach us the details of what hell is like. That's not the point of the parable. The parable is trying to teach us of the selfishness of this rich man. 
he was selfish in life, and he is getting to experience the physical manifestation of ultimate selfishness in the way he treats other people. That's the story of the parable of the rich man. And Lazarus, you can read it later today and have dinner conversations about what I said. Luke chapter 16. The third word that is used for hell in the New Testament is found in 2 Peter 2.4, and it's the Greek word Tartarus. Tartarus is a word that comes from Greek mythology as well. And in Greek mythology, Tartarus is the dungeon, the, the, the place of imprisonment for the wicked in this life who have died, and also for the titans, you know, the ones that the Greek gods overthrew, Zeus and his brothers and sisters and kids. And they kept the, Titus, the, tar, the titans in Tartarus where they were imprisoned and enchained. In 2 Peter 2.4, the only instance where Tartarus is used in the New Testament, it is used to describe the holding place of the devil and his angel, or the angels who have fallen until the time of the final judgment. It's not a real important thing. It's only mentioned once. Fourth word that is used for hell is what we are going to focus on this morning because it's really the key idea in the lasting or the most uses and it's also the most prominent uses of the word hell in the New Testament. And it is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna. Gehenna was a real place in and around Jerusalem. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And you may remember I talked about the valley of Ben-Hinnom a couple weeks ago. Uh, when we were talking about Jeremiah chapter 7 in that temple sermon. Remember I talked about the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and that was the place where King Ahaz, and I described it in gruesome detail, and I'll do it again because it's important to understand the imagery. The valley of Beth-Hinnom was the place where Ahaz, the king of, Israel, or king of Judah, had gone to make child sacrifices to the ancient Moabite god of Molech. And what it was like was this, from what we understand, what scholars understand. The Greek god Molech was worshipped in this way, not with worship songs and preaching. But they would go to this valley, and there was this massive bronze statue. And at the bottom of this bronze statue, it had uh, an image of Molech, and he had his arms that were out like this. And those arms made a little bronze slide. And at the bottom of the slide, there was a Uh, a bowl, a big bowl, and they would light the bowl on fire. And the ancient god Molech would be worshipped through infant sacrifice, child sacrifice, and they would put their children on this slide into the arms of Molech, and he would go in, and they would beat their drums really, really loud so they couldn't hear the screams, and that was how you worshipped the ancient god Molech. Now, every person in Jesus' day would have known That's exactly what happened. So this imagery of Gehenna was like the perfect imagery that God wanted to use or that Jesus used to symbolize hell. Some have conjectured that in Jesus' day, not conjectured, but some postulize that uh, in Jesus' day, the Valley of Gehenna had gone from being this place, this ancient place where these atrocities took place, to being a garbage dump. You know, they turned it into a dump, and that's where they threw their garbage, and they light it on fire. And so there was this image of refuse being lit on fire. Um, if you wanted to Google this, you could go home and do that, and you'd find that there's a lot of controversy around this. In religious studies, that's what we fight about, stuff like this. 
I just don't like to fight, so I just don't get involved. And I'm a pastor, not a theologian, so I don't have to. But basically, the bottom line is this. The trash dump theory that Gehenna was a garbage dump, the only evidence for it is from a Jewish rabbi in the 12th century. You probably don't need to know that or care, but that's it. It could have been. We don't really know. But what we do know is that it was a real place that had a notorious and atrocious history. And Jesus uses it to symbolize final judgment. The word Gehenna is used 12 times. And for the sake of clarity, and because hell is such an offensive and big topic, I just want to go over every instance where Gehenna is used so you get a comprehensive look at what the Bible actually says about hell. And in this way, I hope to remove whatever tradition and at least help you start building your vision of hell on the foundation of what is actually said. All right, every instance, I'm going to move. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. The context here is the Sermon on the Mount. It is a very famous sermon that Jesus gave to his followers at the beginning of his ministry. He went up onto a hill and he started to give law. It's It symbolizes and kind of parallels the life of Moses. He went up onto the mountain and he gave law. Well, Jesus goes up onto this hill and he starts to give law. And in chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, here's what we read. You have heard it said to people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, just meaning fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, repeats it, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The context here is a group of religious people who are either followers of Jesus or contemplating following Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you've heard it said not to murder. I'm telling you, don't even look at people people with hatred in your heart. Because obviously there's some anger that's good. We should be angry at injustice. But Jesus means the anger of hatred. If you even look at somebody with anger of hatred in your heart, you are in danger of the fires of hell. The second uh, verse is in the same exact context. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her her in his heart. And then it goes on and gives these uh, appendages, yes? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better to lose one part of your body than the whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one part than to be thrown into the fire, for your whole body to go up into hell. Here again, it's, he's talking Jesus to believers and saying, rather than commit these wicked acts We could say acts of evil, acts of hell. Rather than bringing the wickedness of the reality of hell to this world, remove by whatever means necessary, whatever it takes to not bring evil and wickedness into this world so that your whole body will not be one day consumed by the evil that you've committed. Third instance, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, and this one is so interesting. It says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And what makes it interesting is not just the verse itself, but the context that it finds itself in. I mentioned earlier that Matthew 5 
is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It actually is made up of five through seven. Matthew records five great discourses or teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the first. The second one is found in Matthew chapter 10, and it's called the Missionary Discourse. It's called the Missionary Discourse because Matthew chapter 10 is all about Jesus giving instructions to his disciples on the cusp of them going on a short-term mission trip. That's exactly what's going on. His 12 disciples have been gathered. He gives them authority to cast out demons, to do miracles, and to speak the message of God, which is the kingdom of God is at hand, is among you in the person of Jesus. And so at the end of his, like, uh, you could call it a training session. You know, if you've ever gone on a short-term mission trip, you get a training session, right, Karen? This is kind of Jesus' training session. And he says, on your trip, you may be tempted to fear others, Do not be afraid of those who can only hurt your body. Be afraid of the one, God, who can cast your body and soul into hell. The fourth fourth verse, and you'll notice, I didn't say this, but you'll notice that Luke chapter 12, verse 5, uses parallel language, although there is a slightly different context in Luke 12. You could look that up later. But it's this parallel language. There he's talking to Pharisees. Number four, Matthew chapter 18, verse 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have your two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. You know, this is similar, similar to Matthew 5, 27 through 30. It goes through this appendage thing, you know, eye, hand, and foot. The context here, though, is very different. In Matthew chapter 18, the context is actually the disciples have just asked Jesus a question, and they've asked him this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest? And Jesus turns, and he sees, and there's a group of kids playing nearby, and I really like watching kids play. I like watching mine play, as long as they don't disrupt me. I like watching other kids play a lot because it's they're just kids that are at peace and at joy are just like joy incarnate, aren't they? So as these kids are playing nearby, Jesus says to his disciples who had just asked him who is the greatest, he said, kids are the greatest. There's something about kids that is different than adults. J.M. Barry was able to, you know, talk about this in Peter Pan, yeah? It's just like we change when we get older. Uh, But... Jesus says there's something about kids, and that something about kids is generally taken to be this idea that they're innocent and easily trust and have faith. And so Jesus says to them, if any of you hurts one of these kids, talking to his disciples, who are probably not real high suspects to hurt kids and molest them, you know, says to them, if any of you hurts them, it would be better for you to throw a mil- put a millstone around your neck And jump into the ocean. And then he goes on and he says this. You know what we just read. If your hand or foot and your eye, you better be better to have it cut off. He's talking to his disciples about hurting children, a great act of wickedness. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to his 12 disciples. In Mark, which is a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 18, in Mark chapter 9, the same language is used, but there's another little verse that's used that's, um, that often gets quoted in reference to hell that I just want to bring up because I'm trying to be comprehensive, where it says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
like this descriptive language. What I think Jesus is doing there is just trying to say, the punishment is severe and real for those who do acts of wickedness. And no matter where you are in life, most people would agree that people who harm children, kind of a big deal. Next occurrence, Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and he, when he becomes one of you, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Here, the context is Jesus is giving a message to the religious, conservative teachers of his day. That's what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the religious, conservative teachers. Perhaps you've read in the New Testament, and you'll see there's a couple different groups of people that Jesus speaks out against. Mainly it's the Pharisees, but there's also some other religious leaders. There was another group, they were called the Sadducees. Andy Stanley always jokes that they were called Sadducees because they were sad, you see. And um, the reason he says that is because the Sadducees were kind of the liberal religious teachers. They didn't believe in a literal resurrection. They they just kind of taught general teachings about faith to be good. So they were kind of the liberals. Well, Jesus here is talking in Matthew 23, not to the Sadducees, but he's talking to the Pharisees, the conservative religious teachers, saying, your teaching is so vile that when you make a convert, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. In the same context, the next occurrence of hell is in Matthew 23, 33, where he says to the Pharisees, the same group, you snakes. You brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? What the condemnation is, is for the religious teachers who are teaching things that are causing people to go away from God, even though they think they're teaching truth. I'll never forget when I first read Matthew 23. I was probably in fifth grade. I had this little blue adventure Bible, and we were camping, and I was trying to read through the Gospels, you know? what every normal fifth grader does. And uh, I, had, I had gotten the, uh, the bunk above the, the, uh, the driver's seat in one of those RVs when we were camping. I was the only one willing to climb up there. And so I got the, you know, the big bed and I was reading that. And it was the first time I remember reading my Bible and thinking to myself, wow, that is not what I expected from what I learned in Sunday school. You know, I've seen a lot more like that since then. Matthew 23 talking to religious leaders, the conservative ones, not the liberal ones, the Baptists, not the whatever, because I don't feel like saying anything. All right, (laughs) last occurrence of the book, the last occurrence of the word hell in the New Testament is found in James chapter 3, verse 6, the only occurrence of the word hell, Gehenna, outside of the Gospels of Jesus. It's found in James, which is Jesus' half-brother, and he says this, The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person and it sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. This occurrence is very fascinating for it is given in the context of James teaching prospective teachers of the Bible. There's no other way to say it. James chapter 3 verse 1. I warn you, not many of you should seek to be teachers for you are at greater risk. Because those of us who teach the Bible are influencing the way people see God. Sometimes my wife reminds me of that. And so I think about that verse regularly. 
But here James says, hell is something that we bring right now with our tongues. It's something that can be brought to bear even by the person who is a religious person, whether he's a believer or not, I don't know, but a person who seeks to teach the Bible. It corrupts the whole person and it sets the course of his life on fire for the the fires from the fires of hell. There are two more dominant images. I've only put one up here, but I've, I, I forgot to put the other one. And I, I, to be comprehensive, I have to have both. The one is uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've always found this to be a funny image because how do you hear the gnashing of teeth? You know, I've always wondered that. So just indulge me. But see, what is gnashing then, Sharon? You can hear it. I will fix this gnashing stuff for my later sermons. But anyway, um, you can hear it. But uh, it's always been a funny image to me. But the imagery here is in the parables. Yeah. And um, in the parables, there is all kinds of stuff of Jesus. We're talking about the wicked will be thrown into an environment where there's weeping and gnashing in teeth. The last environment, our seri- uh, significant image is the lake of fire. It's found in Revelations chapter 20, and it's a place where the devil and his angels will be eternally cast and all of those who are wicked. Revelation chapter 20. So after studying and thinking about nothing but these verses for the past week, I've come to five takeaways, and I just want to pass them on to you. Five takeaways. Number one, the New Testament never uses hell to persuade the irreligious to convert. The New Testament never uses hell to persuade the irreligious to convert. Uh, That's about all I ever heard growing up. But it never does that. The overwhelming, if not exclusive use of hell in the Bible is used to teach us of the destination of the wicked and it is given to an audience who believes that they are not such. The The religious. It never uses hell to persuade the irreligious to convert. It seems to me that most of our teaching on hell is all about entrance versus escape. You know, how can I not enter and how can I escape? Which makes sense to me, but it's just not the questions or the way that the Bible is addressing this. The New Testament never uses the hell to persuade the irreligious to convert. Second, a lot less is said about hell than you would think. If the Bible wanted to clear up how we understood hell, it would have said a lot more about it than it has. Third, hell is both a present and a future reality. The Bible, of course, talks about hell as a destination for the wicked and as a future reality. But notice that Jesus says that the followers of the Pharisees are turned into converts of hell and they bring hell to the current reality. Notice that James, Jesus' half-brother, says that Hell is something that we bring to earth with our tongues. It is both a present and a future reality. In fact, what we long for and look forward to is the idea that God will one day return, and when he does, he will separate these two realities. But right now, the realities of heaven and hell exist here and now, and we can bring them into existence with wickedness, and we can bring the reality of heaven into existence in an incomplete and partial way with righteous behavior. 
It is present and future reality. Fourth, hell is a place of judgment for the wicked. It is a place of judgment for the wicked. This is a thing that a lot of people don't like, but we can't escape the reality that wickedness will be judged. Remember when I was telling that story earlier about Molech with his hands? Let me ask you a question about that little story. What kind of God wouldn't judge people who commit acts like that? What kind of God would not judge wickedness? Theologian N.T. Wright says, Judgment is the only alternative to chaos. Judgment is the sovereign declaration that there is good in this world and it is to be vindicated and upheld and that there is evil in this world and that it is to be condemned. We don't like to think of judgment, but those of us who have a hard time considering judgment are people, as theologian Miroslav Volf says, who probably have lived in nice neighborhoods and not experienced a lot of atrocities. Number five, all that are in hell, choose it. When I look at the the overarching teaching of the New Testament in the Bible, the teaching is that hell is the destination of those who choose to follow in a wicked behavior and choose to not trust in God. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, are those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. In other words, what he is saying is you can have your way or you can follow God. If we choose to live a life of selfishness, ignoring the reality of God and ignoring him, it inevitably leads us to creating our own moral code and our own moral will in doing whatever we want. And there is a morality that exists outside of us. And if we decide to create our own moral code, our own God, our own way of how reality works, that God, that way, always starts to look a whole lot like what we're good at and pretty condoning of the things that we do well and not of the things that we don't do well. We make God in our image. We choose selfishness. And so all who are in hell choose it. Thy will be done. Or God says to us, you can have it your way. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, he pictures hell as a place where people go. And the picture is they're all in this bus. And they can hardly work together because all of them are saying the whole time, things that matter to them, and they're being incredibly selfish. And that, I think, is about the most accurate picture of hell I've heard. A place where we do not consider others at all, and we live in utter and complete selfishness. Whether it's a place of fiery darkness, where the worm does not decay, I don't know, maybe. I think those are metaphorical language, metaphorical language describing a real reality. That there is a physical and eternal existence that exists for those who decide to pursue wickedness in a life apart from God, in which God says to them, you can have it. For God has brought all that is good to this world, and all that is good is a result of his hand. 
And for those who do not want God, he will give them the freedom to have that choice and he will remove his hand and every vestige of it. And that place will be hell. We don't know what it's like completely, but it's a little bit more accurate picture of the reality. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts and minds through the power of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to our own selfishness. And I pray that you'd help us to follow you in joy and freedom. As we move to communion this morning, we think of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we think of his subsequent and soon return when he will come back and he will make all things right. And until that day he comes, I pray that you would help us to choose love and joy and to bear those realities into the world and into the people around us. As we take the elements of Christ's broken body and shed blood, empower us and nourish us for the task. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.